0: Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you. We are in the gospel according to Mark chapter 14. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there. We will stand in a moment and take verses 32 through 42 in under two minutes. It will take to read that. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went and away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Please be seated. Agony in Gethsemane is this morning's title. We look again at verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here. While I pray, now the word Gethsemane means the olive press, and it happened to be in a garden. It is where they crushed the olives to get the olive oil from the olive. John gives us a little bit more information. He says he went out with his disciples in John 18 over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So here we have this olive press in a garden. Uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea has a wine press in that garden, but this one is an olive garden. And uh, the owner is not named. Well, that's characteristic of all that is taking place in the shadow of the cross that looming event that he is facing. He borrowed a donkey's colt to enter the city. The owner's name is not recorded. The upper room, we do not know who that owner was either, who provided for him there. And then here this this garden. We will, of course, find out the name to the, the garden tomb, the owner of that that garden, Joseph of Arimathea, as I mentioned. It says here in verse 32, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And they fell asleep. What would you have done? Uh, You know, we look at these verses and we're supposed to look for ourselves in them, or at least be challenged. That's where the growth takes place. That's where the pruning goes on and the encouragement that's what helps us get through all these years, these centuries that Christians have moved forward with the faith. In verse 33, Mark records, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. We never hear of the others' protests that, why those three guys? Why not one of us sometimes? Judas may have thought that way, because we understand he was a very carnal man, but we never really we hear them complain about this. <clears throat> they did in Moses' day. There were those that were dissatisfied with God's selection. They felt that Moses had too much authority, all of it given by God. They conveniently factored that out. Uh, I don't want to be that type of person. But here uh, we have for the third time recorded that he selected these three to be near him for a dramatic event. They did not know they were going to encounter these dramatic things uh, that he was bringing them into. Well, the first one they they did, and that was at the house of Jairus when his daughter had died and Jesus brought her back to life. Uh, They didn't know what to expect. They knew it was going to be something. And then there was the Mount of Transfiguration, Again, uh, they did not know what to expect until it unfolded before them. And then here we have him bringing them into the Garden of Gethsemane, and they really don't get it. Uh, We'll talk about that as we move forward. But there is a very interesting parallel that emerges from those three events that these three men were called to uh, witness with the Lord at the exclusion of his other apostles. And Paul said in the Philippian letter that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, if by any means I may be conformed uh, to his uh, resurrection. Well, that's what we see in these three verses, or three experiences, that I may know him. Well, that was the transfiguration. They got a chance to know Jesus in a way that they never knew him, nor anyone else before that event. Then there is, of course, the power of his resurrection, which was in the house of Jairus when he raised his daughter, though that was not a resurrection but more of a resuscitation because he is the first to be resurrected from the dead and transformed. Uh, This uh, third experience is the fellowship of his sufferings here in the Garden of Eden. They were to enter into his suffering with him. He invited them to do this. Uh, Peter, the one that argued with him just minutes before, uh, he is not excluded. He is included. The Lord didn't say, well, you know, Peter, he just gives a pain in the neck after dinner. I'm going to pass him and I'm going to bring Thomas or one of the others with me. I doubt that he would bring Thomas. Of course, I I don't see Thomas as the doubter everybody else sees him meant to be. But anyway, uh, even though Peter argued, there he is. Even though, even though Jesus knew that again, within minutes, Peter is going to flee and then deny him. And knowing this, he brings Peter with him still. Christ would forever keep Peter close to him, no matter what. And you read that, or you, you come to this realization, you say, he does the same thing with everyone who wants him, who loves him. He just keeps us close. He knows you failed. He knows you may argue with him and be disappointed with what he allows or disallows, and yet we still follow. And it's important to remember that Peter, even though he ran off, he still followed from afar, but he was following And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Now, here is where the agony and the death arrive. And there's sort of these dark clouds now coming over him. This moment that he has been ready for is here. And, uh, you know, when we or at least when I perform a wedding, I think other pastors do too, you say to the couple, the moment that you have been waiting for has finally arrived. It's here. It's really happening. That's a joyful occasion. This was nothing but death and torture and agony unparalleled in the human experience and never matched. Again, the second time I've said this, but we'll unfold that a little more also. But he, Jesus Christ, who is troubled, deeply distressed, in agony, in Gethsemane, this garden, it is springtime, things are coming to life, and he's facing death. And within the Godhead, he also planned the redemption for sinners long before Bethlehem, all the way in the foundations of the world. Second Timothy, Paul writes, speaking of Jesus, chapter one, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. I wonder if we, we we remember that enough that the calling we have to Christ, to follow Him, to serve Him, is a holy calling. There's nothing like it. There's, there's no you don't get a holy calling anywhere else. Uh, you, you you this is something that is. Um, You're hand-picked, and this is not Calvinism. Uh, This is not Rickism either, which is superior to Calvinism in my opinion, but that's another sermon. This is God choosing those who choose to submit to him. And this is a, a holy calling, not according to our works. You can't earn it, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. In other words, he is the architect of his suffering, his agony, his death. And uh, as he will read in Hebrews, not this morning, but uh, he he will see uh, the joy that is set before him. Isaiah tells us that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It's worth it to him. We who can only bring him really one thing, and that is love, and that's what he wants. Uh, That is so satisfying to God, our love to him. Uh, Imagine if you had a toddler, uh, you know, two years old, says, you know what, I don't love you. (laughs) I mean, that would be devastating. But what makes, one of the things that makes toddlers so amazing is that they they just love, you know, they love mom and dad. Anyway, uh, verse 34, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. God who came to earth as a man is now letting us see, unlike ever before, his humanity. Which again, they weren't prepared for this. They only knew his deity or his connection to the Father. They did not really know his humanity. They knew that he could hunger and sweat and things like that but not fail, that he was susceptible to suffering, his suffering. See, before this, it was the suffering of others. I mean, at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept because everybody else was shattered. They were in grief, and and he entered into that grief. But now, this is his. Hebrews chapter 4, which I plan to quote, few times from Hebrews because it really captures what's going on here in this garden of agony. It says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tried or tempted as we are, yet without sin. Close quote. He knows what's going on. Being God, he did not have to experience it. He knew, but he does for our sakes, and he tells us. He says to us, I know you may think I'm removed from your sufferings because I'm here on the throne, but I'm not. I'm very much in touch. In Gethsemane, this garden, his humanity also has to face this death, this torture that, again, is unparalleled, and I'll say why soon. Hebrews chapter 2, but we see Jesus. What a beautiful phrase. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. That's him taking on humanity for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. There's so much unique in that. We don't have a time to go through it. But there's something again, unparalleled, about his death. Otherwise, how could he taste it for everyone when there have been so many people that have died, even before his coming? Because the death that he tastes is a holy experience and not a natural one. It is outside of anything you would expect God to subject himself to. God subjected himself to men spitting on him, pulling off his beard, Giving him, uh, scourging him, and then not only nailing him to a tree, that's what a cross is made of, but then prop, prop, uh, propping him up in front of everybody to boast of their work. Hebrews 5, verse 7 Who in the days of his flesh, again, his humanity, that part of him that identifies with us in front of us, be no good for it to happen and we didn't see it happen. We are watching it happen. He continues in Hebrews 5, when he had offered up prayers and supplications. Now again, as we, I just read a minute ago that he came a little lower than the angels because he could not, again, as God enter in in full God, you know, without humanity upon him, enter into these experiences at least that's the way he chose to do it. It says, With vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Vehement cries. We don't get that from the Gospels. The writer to Hebrews tells us that he wept in the garden. It was not just a, in this emotional agony that was internal. It was external also. And he says he... <clears throat> he made his supplication in Christ to him who was able to save him from death, but did not. You could, you could say, you could make an argument for that Jesus experienced an ungranted prayer. And of course, when he says, not my will, your will be done. And God says, of course, that's how we planned it. And, but this is for us. It's not for God. This is for us. And being in the humanity that he assumed he had to go through this, it was not something he could bypass. Nor would he. When he was on the cross, it wasn't as though he somehow blocked out the pain. He took it all. He drank the dregs of the cup. Three times we read of the Lord weeping in Scripture, the Lord Jesus, at the gravesite of a friend named Lazarus at the site of a spiritually doomed city. And there, in the Greek as he was heaving tears. And then here, in the garden. Uh, the first time for a friend, the second for a city, but here it is for himself. And we get that again from Hebrews 5, 7. And not only facing the horrors of crucifixion, he was facing the wrath of God for sinners. For all sinners. So not only did he suffer life and death. And he suffered death too. He had friends that died early. He had neighbors that were afflicted. He suffered life like the rest of us do. Uh, not maybe to the same extent. Because I don't know that the Lord was ever depressed emotionally. As some of us can be. That we can be from time to time. But he suffered alongside of us, and yet his suffering was beyond, far beyond what we know. And so where it says here that he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death as God has become a man. This is self-inflicted pain for somebody else, though. That's what makes it a sacrifice and a substitute. Romans fifteen, where even Christ did not please Himself. Look at that, because I sure like to please myself. And he he could how would he have pleased Himself? Well, first we stayed in heaven. A second, created other beings to love Him. Second, that uh, he could have called legions of angels to put an end to this. Well, to what was coming. Paul continues in Romans. For even Christ did not please himself. But as the scripture says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Those who are against God, those who are against the Father, those who have violated the commandments of God, the judgment for those people, which would include us, fell on him and not them. So that when Christ dies on the cross, he dies in my place as me, taking my punishment, not just that physical torture of the cross, but the spiritual wrath of God, which is something that, according to human eyes, he had never seen before. In his humanity, he faced it and his deity. Verse twelve of Hebrews or verse two of Hebrews twelve. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as I mentioned. He is the architect of our salvation. And when he planned it out and he's mapping it out, for if you could just look at him as an architect would. hes Well, nowadays it's all a keyboard and mouse. And he says, uh, you know, I'll start in Bethlehem and I'll do this in Galilee and I'll make my way to Jerusalem and then I'll pray in agony. I'll, I'll let the processes run their course upon me, knowing what's coming. And the part that's knowing, again, not the spikes, the nails, but the wrath of God, the Eloi, Eli, Lama, That's the part. And yet he says, it has to be this way if I'm going to love the sinners. And so looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. That's your face and my face in heaven. That's the joy set before him. Because if that doesn't happen, there's no joy set before him. It's a mission accomplished kind of a joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's why he took it. It was worth it to him. I have no self-worth. I don't want self-worth. But I have the love of God on me. Self-esteem the opposite of self-esteem is, is, is not self-hatred. It is the esteeming of God. It is the exaltation of God in my life. That covers so many things. It, takes, it, it reduces so many problems. I, you know, I, I pray to the Lord sometimes. I have such a frustration with you know, what he does and doesn't do in my flesh. And God spo- has spoken to me many times. Uh, not whenever I want him to, but one thing liberating, he said to me, and I hope you understand this, Rick, you are my slave. You don't have a vote. I'm your God. What makes that work? Love. Nothing short of love. Because again, in the New Testament, and when Paul talks about a bond servant and a, a servant of Christ, he's saying slave. That's the Greek word that he's using in a Society. <laughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> Forget you saw that. Okay. <laughs> uh, in a society that was had as many slaves as free people, if not more, they identify with Paul when he said, "Okay, when you know you were a slave to some Roman who had the right to kill you on the spot without explanation—that's how far their rights went." Um, Paul says, "I'm a slave." But not to that Roman. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. And so when he writes his letters from jail, he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar, which on a human level he was. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. A bondservant. That means willing. The word bond, he's taking the Hebrew uh, event and he's applying it to slavery in, in, in a Gentile world. And he's saying, I am the slave of Jesus Christ and willfully so. That stops a lot of arguments with God because then you say, well, wait, if he is the master and I have no say so, it's out of my hands and I will then trust his character because I don't have a Roman for a master. I have the God of love and I don't like the, you know, when he tells the church in Smyrna, suffer till you die that's what he tells that church but i'm going to make it good that's what faith then faith then kicks in okay this is this belongs to god not an easy place it's an impossible place to come to in your own strength it's something that is a spiritual event that god gives and in many times when god gives us something uh it has to be maintained and this is also significant when Peter says kept by the power of God. Paul talks about God running the universe continuously because he does in Ephesians. Anyway, the joy that is set before him, enduring the cross, hating the shame, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's in total control and I must submit to that and that's what we're getting out of this agony in Gethsemane. He's submitting to God's will, and it hurts, and it hurts immensely. But there is this resolve in the shadow of this suffering and death. Others have suffered more. His resolve is mentioned by himself in John's gospel. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come. Well, now the hour is here. As I mentioned earlier, the time that you've been waiting for, the moment has arrived. Isaiah, who wrote so much about Messiah, more than anyone else as far as volume goes, he says, just as many were astonished at you, that's the the, uh, captivity of Israel, then he says, so his, now now it elevates, it's it's typical of Jewish writers' to to float in and out and leave the context to make its point. He says, So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Marred renders the individual unrecognizable, disfigured. Christ subjected himself to this for us. However, others have suffered more physically You can easily refute that. There have been those who have been eaten alive, burned alive. Some of them have not been fully eaten alive and survived maimed. Uh, There are those that are visually more disfigured, have been, than the Christ. But not one comes close to spiritual disfigurement, to suffering uh, the invisible, And this is what happened to him, the disfiguring. It's relative to something. You have a figure, then you have a disfigure. disfigure. Well, it's relative to a before and after. Well, the before is the perfect Christ in heaven, holy and undefiled. Then you have him walking this virtuous life amongst men, holy and undefiled. And then you have the wrath of God on him. And everything is, is... now understood it from Isaiah. So his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And Isaiah, who previously said, my servant, and that's how we know he's talking about Messiah, goes on in Isaiah 53. Wounded for us, our transgression, chastisement for our peace upon him. By his beatdown, I am saved. And it was a beatdown on the cross. He continues, Isaiah does, and he says, uh, well, earlier he said, surely he has borne our griefs, our sickness, the spiritual sickness. It wasn't like, surely he's gotten a cold for me. No, this is something so far beyond all of us that when you stand and you preach it to somebody, whether you're witnessing or in a pulpit, you say, who am I to say these things? I'm the cause of the death. And yet, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. He explicitly tells them he is in trouble. He says to them here in verse 34 Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And I don't want to watch this alone. Watch with me. They never saw him in trouble, so they don't understand. They're not getting it. They're missing it. He doesn't want to panic them. What more can he say? This is killing me. That's what he's saying. I am troubled unto death. Prayer warriors can die on battlefields. That's one of the lessons. We get that not only from the Christ. We get that from Peter. We get it from Paul. These men, uh, James, who is one of the three that are supposed to be witnessing these things, but they're missing it. James, the first apostle, martyred. Not James, the brother of the Lord, who wrote the letter of James. Prayer warriors can die on battlefields. We're not owed survival. It's uh, hard to just take that in mentally. I need more. I need it emotionally. That's one of the, the, the fruits of singing songs to the Lord is that there's that emotional connection that we should have. In the early days of early Christianity, after the apostles, let's just say in ancient Turkey, for example, where there were many Christians. Paul did so much work in what's called modern Turkey, Asia Minor, if you will, in the New Testament. A lot of those people were illiterate. They could not read or write. So how did they learn these Bible stories? Yeah, well, those who could read and write would tell them, but also the artists would draw pictures on the walls, on the ceilings, anywhere they could that would tell the story. And you could look at a picture of Christ washing the feet of a a servant, his, his disciples, and you can understand better. Those pictures became emotional. Of course, in time, Satan got in and abused them. But early on, uh, they were for illiterate people, much like we do with our children. Unless you become like little children, crying out, Abba, Father. So, he says, stay here and watch. He is still telling his believers this. Luke 13, so in, in this parable, he is the master and they are the servants. And so he called Ten of his servants delivered to them ten minus and said to them, do business till I come. Watch and work until I return or you come to me, as the case might be. Verse 35. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed. That if it were possible, the hour might pass from him This uh, is something we must realize, that there was no way around this for him. And he knew it. No, he had to go through it. But he's still expressing through his humanity. Who, what, who in their right mind would say, oh boy, I'm going to be tortured today. And I'm going to love this. There would some, be something very wrong. And so he is identifying with us, making us witnesses of his sufferings. So that we could know how to suffer ourselves. And this is why he told them about what he was going through, to watch, to pray with him. His going through it, no other. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. I know I read this verse a lot, but it's worth reading. It's kind of the thing that if it were a runner on the floor, it, it would be worn down because it had so much traffic go over it nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other. So I'll read the verse. Nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no salvation anywhere else from anywhere else. Again, how do we stand and preach this? Paul said to the Corinthians, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Acts chapter 20, verse 27, he said to the Ephesian elders, I'm not shunned to declare to you the entire counsel of God. Again to the Corinthians, he says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast for. Necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You come to those times where you feel like you're not worthy to share the gospel. Well, that's so, you're just recognizing truth. You're not worthy, but you're qualified by the blood of the Lamb. He's not entrusted the gospel to sinless angels. He's entrusted the gospel, the good news, preaching it to sinners. And so we go back to Peter. Peter just argued with him. Peter forgot that whole I'm the slave thing and he's the master. Yet Christ still takes him, and will still use him, and will rebuild him. We're not to think, just because we can read First and Second Peter and his exploits in the book of Acts, that we know all about what he did. He certainly did more than what anyone could ever write. And Jesus did not waste his investment on these men. Even Judas, was not a wasted investment, but a redirected investment, God was able to say, you see, and, and how many lessons we have from Judas. Who wants to be a Judas Iscariot? Incidentally, Mark does not refer to him again as Judas in this gospel. He is now the betrayer. Name is identity. He does not identify with praise. That, that was a glorious name for the Jews. To name your child Judas or Judah or Jude. Very rendings of the same Hebrew word, praise. Now, here in verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You read that once, you never forget that kind of a thing. But this informs us of what? Where he says, Abba, Father. What is that telling me? Why do I need to hear this? It informs us that he was in emotional agony. Why is that? <clears throat> you know, I want to let out one really good cough. And I want to just say, ooh, look, and you all turn away and I go through it. And that may have to happen. Anyway, Abba. (laughs) It's an Aramaic word, which is an Aramaic language was richer than the Hebrew. It has some Hebrew in it, but it was much richer. The Hebrew actually is traced back to the Canaanites. You get into language, ancient languages, and the impact on modern language and various cultures. It's intense, but it brings you right back. It brings you right back to your translated Bibles. It is amazing. God knows what he's doing. Only God could overcome such a, such madness of language. Only God could rule over what he did at Babel. And uh, anyway, Moody. So Abba is, is our equivalent of Daddy. So he's saying, Dad, Father, He's joined the two together. Why is that? Well, D.L. Moody, in a sermon on Isaac offering up, oh, sorry, Abraham offering up Isaac. This is amazing what Moody, his conclusion is. And if you don't know who D.L. Moody was, or I should say is, because Christians don't die. We just relocate. Better neighborhood. Location, location, location. Uh, Anyway, Moody was one of the world's greatest evangelist, uh, but mainly here in America. He says, There was a time when I used to think more of the love of Jesus Christ than of God the Father. I used to think of God as a stern judge on the throne from whose wrath Jesus Christ had saved me. It seems to me now I could not have a falser idea of God than that. Since I have become a father, I have made this discovery, that it takes more to love and to sacrifice for the father to give up the son than it does for the son to die. It hurts God more. It hurts God the father more. If we want to put this on an in, in, in emotional language for us and theological truths for us, then we realize... It would hurt me more to watch one of my child children suffer. I'd rather suffer in their place. Unless it's like, you know, you got to do your homework and you're suffering. I, I, you, go ahead, kid. You're going to have a good time with that one. But we're talking about a real pain. And he continues, Moody does. He says, is a father on earth a true father that would not rather suffer than to see his child suffer? I mean, one of the worst parts of parenting is when your child is suffering. And so, we consider the Father in heaven. We see Jesus suffering in agony. It's not by accident. He says, Abba, Father. He cries out. He, uses bo- he joins the two expressions. Not only Dad, but also the formal Father. It is a fuller expression of his relationship. It is a fuller expression of what the Father is going through. Therefore, Calvary hurt God for us. God, as you see, you can say that, I would say to the Lord, you brought this on yourself by by Eden. And God would say, you really are stupid. You really, really are. Yes, he brought it on himself. But when we get to heaven, he's going to simply say, you see. And that will satisfy it all. It uh, it was an imperative of Jesus Christ with this prayer being made public to these sleeping disciples. He had to have retold this to them or told it to them after his resurrection. Or else, how else would we have this? Uh, They were sleeping. They weren't there. And uh, he spent time with them and he did minister to them. And he did choose what things he wanted preserved on record. And this this Gethsemane agony is high up on that list. He says, all things are possible for you. And he's talking to the Father. Abba, Father, you can do anything. You're my dad. You can do anything according to humanity, his humanity that he has taken on. What would happen if he just dismissed his humanity? Well, he's going to do that on the cross when he gives up his spirit. And his humanity is gone forever. No more flesh for him. No more dying for him or suffering. He then resumes his place in the Godhead in uh, uh, full force. But for now, he's hindered by this flesh. And the flesh, of course, has two meanings depending on the context. One is the carnal nature and the other is just flesh and blood. And that's what uh, he is right now. And so he says all things are possible. But in this case, there is no alternative, no other name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. It would be cruel otherwise if there were an alternative and God didn't take it. Then God would not be a God of love. He would be a strange God. But this was the route that salvation came to us through. This is the avenue right here. No way out of this painful life into the painless life. No other way. No other service, Savior. Revelation 5, the first nine verses, capture this for us. I'll just take verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is incredible. The blood of Christ has reached everywhere. Take, we continue here. Verse 36 I better get going. You're slowing me down. We have slow listeners in this church. Take this cup away from me. Uh, Again, no one would say, Oh, I can't wait. Uh, This is not trivial with him. It's very serious business. He alone tasted a death unknown to all creation, unable to be understood in its entirety. But we get enough, and that's what God wants. He wants us to get enough, and that's what the Holy Spirit helps us do. All die, but none like him. It's just an interesting thing. When Jesus ascends to heaven, it's not as showy as Elijah I just thought of that the other day. And you know, he just kind of just goes up. It's kind of relatively boring relative to Elijah going up in his fiery chariot. Elijah, so we can understand, he's a show-off. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I would like to top that if I give given the choice. <laughs> anyway, uh, multitudes have been crucified. And none like this one. Hebrews 2, verse 9, again, just apart. part. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He's tasting death unlike any of us could ever do it uh, because of his holiness. So uh, these words mean that his death was unique and it was bound to him. He uh, He could not have died as God. He could not have died for us as an angel. So he became a man to suffer and die for us. And in his role as Savior, he is the one that willfully took this on uh, under the curse. Who would ask, which of you would ask to be born into this life again? I think you live long enough, you say, boy, I can't wait to get out of it. He comes into it. We hear about our first responders going into burning buildings when everybody's coming out. And that is noble. But this is so far more. This is so far beyond this. He's not going into a burning building. He's going into a curse. Nevertheless, he says, not what I will, but you. what, what you will. But to completion, incidentally, not some of what you will. Uh, my desk in my office here at church is actually pretty empty. It's nice and clean. My desk at home is a workshop. There's books and papers, stuff all over it. i never finished. I can't get in, you know, I just never am finished. He, he finished his work. John chapter 4, Jesus said to them, My food, that which sustains me, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Never in conflict with the Father. This work is demanding. Luke tells us what happened after he said this. I wish I could stay on this verse longer, uh, but we have to finish up. Luke tells us what happened right after he says this. Luke 22, verse 43 Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Because the other guys were asleep. He was that lonely, that much on his own in his flesh. That he had to be reinforced by God directly. His prayer to bypass the cross was declined. And he owned it after that. And aren't we glad? Because no one would get saved without him going to the cross. Verse 37. You know, I just thought, if we factor out my pauses suppressing the cough, I would have another 20 minutes. (laughs) Let's pretend. How about that? Verse 37, then he, they came and found him sleeping and said, and then he came, verse 37, and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? This, the tone is such a sweet tone, knowing who he is, what he's doing. Uh, that, that supper with the Lord, that last supper, that Passover meal, contributed to their slumber. They must have had a lot of pasta. <laughs> they're just like, look, I, I'd love to, Lord. Oh. And just tired. Uh, but he did not want to be alone. And other times we read that he went away to get away from these guys so he can pray. Here he wants them with him. David writes this psalm. It is a tough psalm because he's going through such pain. He says, reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity. But there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Now, that's the Christ here. And that's us sometimes, too. Sometimes we feel nobody understands. Uh, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. (laughs) You know, the the only mom would really understand, maybe, or nobody understands. Christ says, I know know the drill. I know. I've been there. Not that he had to experience it to know. Because God cannot learn. Not that he's a stubborn pupil, but he is omniscient. He cannot be improved. Your God is not developing. When he took humanity on, he developed as a human under the spirit in front of our eyes. And it has worked for him and us. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Why single out Peter? Well, it underscores his leadership and the influence that he had. And it's sad that Christians will say they love God's word and they can't sit under a sermon more than 20 minutes. It takes work. It takes pain to do things the right way. If you want a standard of excellence, if you want to pursue it, you're going to have to sacrifice. It's just, I don't, you know, there, there are no elevators that lead to success. There are only steps, and sometimes ropes. Verse 38, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, focusing on uh, them with, with patience and, and kindness already. <clears throat> Already, uh, don't feel sorry for me. I, mm, <laughs> God has got like, I, I got you, but I got to slow you down, you know, because you're a knucklehead. You would be all emotional over this stuff and trying to make it more than what I want it to be. So I'm going to have to slow you down, boy. And I go, yes, Lord, if, but you know, if I didn't become a pastor, okay, I'm using up my time in the soliloquy I'm having. Uh, anyway, uh, already the forces are afoot that are going to give Peter the worst day of his life. And he doesn't know it. So the Lord comes and says, Are you still praying? sleeping? You need to pray unless you enter into this trial. The Spirit indeed is willing. Now, again, he does not disown them. You miserable weaklings. After all, I mean, the meal was free. What's happening with you? He doesn't do anything like that. Here's something for those of you and those of us who can sometimes be harder on weaklings. Now, granted, sometimes weaklings want to be weak. They enjoy it. They've learned that's their new identity. They're lonely without their weakness. And it's really hard to minister to them because you don't want to enable them to be weaker still because they begin to drain resources. But on the other hand, you don't want to bludgeon them either. And many of us are weak. All of us are weak somewhere. Me, it's, of course, in hair treatment. I, I fail there, and I admit it freely Galatians 6, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Well, at one point, Paul told to Galatians, you wait till I get there. (laughs) So he balanced it. Verse 39, again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Now, this is critical. He's not trying to be creative. He goes back to the battlefield. He doesn't say, okay, let me try another, another formula of prayer. He repeats himself. But here's the key. It's not a vain repetition. It is a repetition, but it is not a vain one. Luke twenty-two forty-four then rings in on this moment. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. They have a hard time imagining praying with that intensity. Um, I, you know, you, when you pray hard, you you end up praying yourself out. You're out of ammo. You just you can't. You got to get up, uh, but that can take a while. But to sweat uh, like great drops of blood, I would then have another prayer request. <laughs> It'd be about stopping the blood. All right, you don't mind bleeding. Verse forty. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. You know what gets me about verse 40 is that one word, again. He encouraged, this encourages me, because he finds me again, not as I should be doing, and he doesn't hurt me. I mean, sometimes he has to, you know, the rod. I mean You've got to whack the kid, and the kid's got to feel it. Some kids. Other kids, you know, a good horse knows the shadow of a whip kind of a thing. For their eyes were heavy, they're drugged with sleep, and they did not know what to answer him. I hope there are none of you right now that your eyes are heavy. No, how could we be? We're waiting for you to suppress that cough. It's <laughs> so goofy, this life. I, was, none of this stuff's going to be in heaven. You won't ever have to say to someone in heaven, oh, I shouldn't have said that. If you do, they pull a lever and a trap door opens, and you're gone. (laughs) Verse 40, um, uh, and they did not know what to answer him. Good they didn't just say something dumb. Verse 41, then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Um, he, from Gethsemane, from the slope on a Mount of Olives in Israel, you would be able to hear on a, at night, you'd be able to see the lanterns coming and hear the clanging of their gear. And he could tell they were coming when he was still praying. He would have been able to hear them. Uh, it's not that far. The Kidron Valley is not a few hundred feet, um, I, would, I would guess. I haven't been there with a tape measure. But uh, anyway, he would have known they were coming. Verse 4, they would have too if they were awake. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So he's going forward to face those who are coming to arrest and hurt him. He says, my betrayer. And I'll close with this. <clears throat> there is an eternal distance between an act of sin and an act of no longer wanting Jesus to be your savior. Peter fell down. Judas walked away. Infinite distance. Peter failed. He denied the Lord. Again, his confusion. He didn't know what to do. Everything was a mess in his head. It was fear, uncertainty, which causes fear. Judas was totally in control of his intellect. And he said, you know what? I'm going to turn him over. And who cares what his motives were? He never came back. He walked away and stayed away. And so I close with Hebrews 12, then we'll start communion. Uh, verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. I'm reading from Hebrews twelve twenty-five. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. And so... Uh, This turning away from Jesus is referred to as something that will ruin a a soul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as the men are preparing the articles. Our Father in heaven, we uh, we ask that these lessons preserved for us are put to good use. We always invite your Holy Spirit to work... through us in our lives, to work in us and through us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.